If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Uh, Romans chapter 3, you might be thinking, well, if you've been with us, why are we not in Daniel? Well, we'll, we'll get back there. But um, for many churches, um, they would be recognizing as we are today uh, that this is Reformation Sunday. And we've been working through the course of the month of October and talking about different people that God used um, during the, the Protestant Reformation to bring the church back to um, core doctrine from the Word of God. Because the church had gotten off uh, away from what Scripture taught and began to teach a variety of other things. And so we've been recognizing some of those people that God raised up uh, to do some amazing things that really have impacted us today uh, in our church, even this morning. And so I want to take an opportunity to just focus in on one of the most important aspects of what was fought for uh, through the Protestant Reformation uh, from from uh, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in a word of prayer first. Uh, I want to thank God for all of you being here this morning. Uh, you're a fine-looking bunch, I have to say, and uh, you are a blessing to me, and, and I want to pray that God would guide us and direct us as we get into His Word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your love for us. I want to thank You for the songs that we've already sung. The lyric that keeps on going through my mind is, from you are all things and to you are all, you are all things. You deserve the glory. And certainly, God, we want to glorify you as we open your word. And as I endeavor to teach it this morning, I pray that you would take my stumbling words and that you would just... Let those pass on by people and that your Holy Spirit would take your word and impact hearts and lives the way that you desire to do it. I thank you for each and every person that's here. Thank you for those that would be watching online that you would be working in hearts and lives, that you would be doing the business that you want to do in each and every one of our hearts so that either we would be coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation or we would be walking closely with you, living lives that are pleasing to you, impacting the world around us. We ask you for your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. So a gentleman started attending a church one time, and um, as he was attending for a while, the leadership of the church decided that they wanted to kind of get to know this gentleman a little bit. Um, before, you know, maybe asking him to be involved in, in anything in particular in the church. And so the leadership of the church um, asked this guy to meet with them, and they sat him down, and they, they wanted to get a feel for, for where he was at with uh, what he believed. And so they asked him, uh, what, what do you believe? And so the man responded by saying, well, I, I believe what the church believes. And they thought, well, okay, well, that might be all right. I mean, you know, that sounds pretty good, but, you know, we probably should get a little bit more of a, an idea here. So they said, okay, so what, what does the church believe? And the guy responded and said, well, well, the church believes what I believe. And so they thought, well, okay, this is not going exactly where we were hoping, so maybe we'll ask him one, one more question. And they said, okay, so what do you and the church believe? And he said, well, we believe the same thing. It might be important for us to understand what we believe. 
And as we've been talking with or talking about and learning about some of the reformers that have gone before, these are individuals that as they looked at what the church was teaching, what the church believed, and what the scriptures taught, they saw that there were glaring discrepancies. And they endeavored to believe what the Bible taught and what God instructed them to believe, not simply what the church believed. And um, it's important, I think, for us to reflect on um, what we believe and why we believe it and whether or not we actually believe what the Word of God actually teaches or if we are finding ourselves believing what the world is trying to teach us. And I believe that it has major impact on the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. There's a, a group called Ligonier Ministries, and they work with Lifeway Research, and every two years they do something called the State of Theology Survey. And they survey um, people in the United States, and the goal is this, it's to get a snapshot of what our society believes and what the church or evangelicals believe about theological questions. So they ask certain theological questions. They ask it to the general kind of populace in the United States, and then they hone in and ask, they, they ask evangelical Christians uh, the same questions, and then they survey how those responses are. And I want to read you a few theological questions, and I want to share with you the response of just Americans in general and then evangelical Americans. Now, I know that we're not in the United States, but what I know is this, is that what we see reflected in the United States is at least where we are in Canada or we're worse off. That is for certain. And so they asked a few questions in this survey, and I want to share with you just a few responses. First question was, does God change? And so they ask the question, and then they make a statement, and then they ask people to either agree or disagree. And so the, the first question was, does God change? And the statement is this, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. And when they serve just the average American adults, 51% of U.S. adults says, say, yes, we agree with that statement, that God learns and adapts to different situations. Now, we might say, well, okay, that's, who knows what backgrounds these people are coming from. Maybe they're non-religious. Maybe they belong to a different faith. Maybe they're not necessarily Christians. Maybe some of them claim to be but are, are, are nominal. So 51%, that's not a big deal. That's pretty, pretty standard. They asked the same question to evangelical Christians. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Of U.S. evangelicals, 48% agree with that statement that God learns and adapts to different situations. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God is omniscient, which means He knows all things, and that God is immutable, which means He cannot and does not change. Scripture makes that clear, Isaiah 46, Malachi 3, James 1, 1 John 3. And yet 48% of evangelicals say, yeah, God, God learns and changes, adapts. Next statement that they made. Are we born innocent? The statement was this. Everywhere, excuse me, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 
That's the statement. And then they polled Americans. U.S. adults said 71% they agree with that, that every person is born innocent in the eyes of God. When they asked American evangelicals, is, are, is everyone born innocent in the eyes of God? 65% of evangelicals said yes. 65% of U.S. evangelicals said, yeah, everybody's born innocent. Another statement that was asked of Americans, statement number 16, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. Unsurprising, as a general rule, U.S. adults found that to be 53% right. They agreed with it. 53% said, yep, that's true. Ancient myths, not literally true. Helpful, but that's about it. USA evangelicals, when asked the same question, read the same statement, 26% agreed with that. One quarter of U.S. evangelicals surveyed said the Bible is just like every other sacred writing, ancient myths, helpful, not true. Then they asked U.S. evangelicals or this statement, or they said this statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. U.S. evangelicals, 43% of them agreed with that. Jesus is simply a great teacher, but he's not God. It's helpful to know what we believe. It's helpful to know what Scripture teaches us when it comes to doctrine and what we ought to believe versus bothered me what the world teaches us. And I'm going to hone in on the one that really bothered me, I guess, the most, and you've heard me talk about it before, but I think it's absolutely essential given the passage of Scripture that we're looking at. And the title of my message was, Is Not Guilty. The statement was, everybody is born innocent in the eyes of God, and 65% of U.S. evangelicals said yes. I would argue that that number is probably considerably higher among Canadian evangelicals. And as we've been talking about the Reformers, and as we've been talking about key things that the Reformers fought for, which is things like sola scriptura, that that Scripture alone is what we get our doctrine from. This is what we get our, our teaching from. This is where the authority comes from for believers in Jesus Christ. When, when the church teaches something, it should be grounded in the Word of God. It should come from the Word of God. They fought for that. We just learned about that today with Tyndall. He was willing to die to get a copy of Scripture in the hands of any English person that wanted one to the point where people literally were learning to read so that they could read the Word of God. And yet, many of us have several copies of the Word of God. We've got one in our car. We've got one on our shelf. We've got one on our nightstand. We have one beside our couch. And if we were asked to be honest, what would our answer be when it comes to how often do I read that? How much time do I spend in it? Do I memorize Scripture? Do I meditate on it? 
You know, the sir, uh, one of the studies that, that was made when it came to Christians is that the average Christian reads their Bible maybe twice a week. Maybe twice a week. This is probably why so many evangelicals would answer the question, yeah, we're all born, we're, we're all born innocent before God. We're not inherently sinners. We're generally good. One panel of preachers one time was asked, why is it important that we rediscover the gospel? And one of the men sitting on the panel said, you know, the reason why we as Christians need to rediscover the gospel is because we wrestle with self-justification. And that resonated with me when I was listening to it because I thought, you know what, I do that. I'm pretty good at excusing what it is that I do wrong because I sometimes buy into that lie that, you know what, I'm essentially a pretty good person. I know that's not true. I do wrestle at times with the fact of the reality that I'm not. But in my sinfulness, you know what, I sure try to justify myself. I was having a a, a bit of a bad attitude. Actually, that's not even fair. I, I should be, go beyond that. I had a bad attitude yesterday. I was wrestling with some frustration and anger. My wife was trying to correct me on that. And of course, I pushed back on that because I wanted to be justified in my anger and my frustration and my complaining heart, even though I knew it was wrong. I probably should share with you why it is that I had that bad attitude. Many of you know that uh, what my opinion of dogs is. I have a dog in my home now. It is not my dog. It is my son's dog. Anytime I happen to be walking that dog and somebody sees it, they'll say, oh, what a beautiful dog. And I'll say, it's my son's dog. I don't want to lay claim to this dog. It's a puppy. One of our friends said that you're going to hate that dog before you love that dog. You know what part of the, that process that I'm in? I hate that dog. I was having a bit of a bad attitude towards that dog yesterday. And when I was confronted with the fact that I was complaining and I was frustrating and frustrated and I, I shouldn't have been behaving or having the attitude that I had, what was my response? I had all sorts of reasons why I should have been able to be angry and frustrated and upset and complaining. Because you know what? I wrestle with the fact that I'm entitled to this, or I'm owed this, or I'm really not that bad, and that the sin in my life is really not that much of a sin. One of the things that Martin Luther, one of the reformers, wrestled with the most was the, the, the teaching in Scripture of justification. Justification by faith. And I want to talk a little bit about that, because the whole idea of being declared not guilty before a holy God is taught and expanded upon by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And I want us to look at this for a minute because this is key. And I think that we as believers need to come back to this and be retaught this and reminded of this because it's so essential. See, when we're communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not really the good news to people who don't recognize that they need the good news. And if we aren't reminded of the fact that we've been exposed to the good news, 
and how great that news is, then we're probably not going to go and communicate that good news with somebody else. And Paul takes the time with the Roman church and he says, I want you to remind, I want to remind you, I want to teach you of the righteousness of God through faith, justification by faith. And he says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for his sin, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented himself to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Christ. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about what Paul is teaching here. I think for us to really grasp the gravity of what Paul is opening up for the Roman church, we need to understand where Paul got to or how Paul got to that and what Paul taught previously. The first thing that I want us to see is this, that all are guilty before God. Paul makes this abundantly clear. This goes, flies right in the face of that one statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. The scriptures teach the exact opposite to that. And yet we want to believe that I'm born innocent before God, that I don't deserve any sort of condemnation, that the only thing that I do wrong happens to be as a result of my upbringing or, or, or my environment, that I'm an essentially a good person, that eventually no matter what I do and no matter what I say, I'm eventually going to get to heaven or wherever it is that I think I'm supposed to go. So many people want to buy into this, and yet Scripture says that's exactly contrary in Scripture. Paul, in, first, in the first chapter of Romans, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For they knew God, but they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And Paul just continues to go on. That God gave them over to a debased mind. They followed unnatural passions. They had sexual relations with with uh, outside of the grounds of marriage. They had sexual relations between men with men and women with women. He just continues to go on. Even though there were those that had the law of God given to them, all that the law did was demonstrate to them and show to them that they were sinful people and that they could not keep the law. And then he leads us to the first part of Romans chapter 3, where he says this, what, what then, are we any better off? As he was talking about those that have gone before and how wicked the world was since the fall. He says, are we any better off? And he says, not at all. For we all have changed both 
church, both the Jews and the Gentiles are all under sin, as it is written. And then he quotes scripture, for there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says this is where we find ourselves as human beings. Scripture tells us that Adam and Eve were the ones that first sinned in the Garden of Eden. God says clearly to them. In fact, he actually told Adam, and Adam's responsibility was to communicate that with Eve. He says, you can eat freely of all the fruit of the trees in the Garden of Eden, but the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat of its fruit. And I got thinking about that. I was listening to a preacher talk about that particular sin first sin of Adam and Eve, which has plunged all mankind into sin. And the preacher said, you know, that, that, that's Satan's knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And I got thinking about that for a second. It's mulling it over. How, how has the knowledge of evil impacted us as human beings? See, Satan deceived Eve. He says, look, you're going to be just like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, God's holding back on you. But if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. And since then, that's exactly the way that we've operated. We think that we're on par with God. I should run my own life. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I'm going to determine how things are going. We definitely have fallen into that. But I got thinking about this knowledge of evil. I got thinking of some of the stories that I hear in the news Now, you hear stories of just evil, wickedness, you know, senseless beatings of people in the street. In you know, some of the larger cities, whether it's in Canada or the United States, you just hear news story after news story of somebody just getting beaten within an inch of their life for no reason at all. And you think, how does that happen? You hear stories of people preying on children on the internet or in person, you're just like, who, how does this happen? Who thinks of this sort of stuff? Where does this evilness come from? And then I got thinking, you know what? Adam and Eve, the moment that they sinned, became a completely aware, not just aware of evil, evil thinking, but actually thinking evil. And you wonder how much regret they may have had when Cain, Adam's and Eve's son, takes a stone and kills his brother Abel because God's accepted Abel's offering and didn't accept Cain's offering. Where did he understand to do that? How could you take a stone and beat your brother to death? Except that he had sin, sin in his heart, sin in his mind. He was able to conceive such an atrocity. See, we're not innocent before God. We are not essentially good people. We are evil people. We are sinful people, and Scripture makes that abundantly clear. For anybody that has children, you've seen that. 
I never at once had to teach any of my kids to hit one another. I didn't have to teach them to take temper tantrums because they didn't get their way. I didn't have to teach them how to lie. And so on and so on. My parents didn't have to teach me. Nobody had to teach me to be selfish. I come by that naturally. Nobody had to teach me to be arrogant, to be rebellious. That's all in my heart. Self-righteous. You know what? I stand guilty before God. We, each and every one of us stand guilty before God. So how do we have an opportunity to hear not guilty before a holy God? Paul talks about, he says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. You can find it in the law, the Old Testament law and in the prophets. They talk about it. Jesus is coming. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because of His restraint God's passed over the sins previously committed. I'm going to pop up a visual. This is not mine. I actually heard another pastor that I really appreciate teach on this, and, and he drew this out on a chalkboard where he was, and I, I found this, and I wanted us to see this because in this passage, there are three aspects of salvation, God's work and salvation that are taught in this passage. This is a robust passage. It's not all of the elements. We, we're not getting into the teaching of adoption, being adopted as sons and daughters of God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not in this particular passage. That's an aspect of it. That's a, a time for another day. But what we see here is justification, redemption, and propitiation. And what this visual helps us to see is this that it is all of God and none of us. Absolutely none of us. Martin Luther fully understood that there was no way that he could make himself right before God, that he was completely sinful and that he needed God to do all of the work. And he wrestled with that for a long time. He actually despised the gospel because he had trouble understanding, based on what the church taught him at the time, the, under, the biblical understanding of justification. And he wrestled with that. And this diagram just helps us to see the aspect of justification, propitiation, and redemption. God, as a holy God, has to pour out his wrath on sin. Scripture makes that abundantly clear in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. God, as a holy God, has to deal with sin. So how does he deal with it? Well, either we're going to experience his wrath or Jesus experienced his wrath. And in this, we see that Jesus is our propitiation, that Jesus paid the redemption, and that we experience justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone.
I want us to just see this for a second. He says this, we are justified freely by his grace. This is a gift that God freely bestows on us, the gift of God's grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there is no more wonderful word than grace. It means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. It is not merely a free gift, but it is a free gift to those who would deserve the exact opposite. And it is given to us while we are without hope and without God in the world. We are justified freely by his grace. God gives it to us freely. We are declared righteous by God freely by his grace. How? It says through the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the idea of redemption is this. It says bought out of slavery. Originally, the idea of redemption was wrapped up in when two armies went to war and when the victor defeated their enemy, they would take the generals and all the key individuals who were not killed in battle and they would take them as political prisoners. And in order to get those back, the defeated nation would have to pay a ransom to get back those key individuals from their military that were taken captive. And so they would redeem those soldiers. It later became a, a connected to the idea of buying back slaves from the slave market. And so an, an owner would come in and they would come to the slave market and they would pay the purchase price to redeem the slave from the slave market so that that slave could work for them. What Christ did on the cross of Calvary is that he paid the ransom for you and for me. We're standing on the slave block of sin. We are slaves to it. We will do it. We will do its bidding. We can do nothing else. My sinful fleshly desires, my wicked thoughts, I'm going to follow after them. But Jesus paid that price for me. He bought me off of that slave market so that I'm no longer a slave to my, my master's sin. I'm now a slave to my master Jesus, and he sets me free. See, Christ redeemed mankind through his work on the cross of Calvary. But it also says this, he presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Now, that's the phrase propitiation. Some of your translations may actually say the word propitiation. My translation says atoning sacrifice. One of my favorite preachers, he, he speaks, uh, preached, he's dead now, but he preached from a translation of Scripture that also used the phrase atoning sacrifice. And he knew personally the, the translators of that version of Scripture, and so he went to one of them and he said, can you explain to me why you used atoning sacrifice for a word that's actually propitiation? Like, I prefer that you would actually stick with the word. And the, the translator says, well, nobody knows what propitiation means, so we decided to use atoning sacrifice because we thought it would be a little more understandable. And then when he pressed him a little bit, he's like, well, actually, most Christians don't even know what atoning sacrifice means, but that's the best that we had available to us. The word propitiation means this, the turning away of anger by offering a gift. 
See, Jesus turned away the anger, the wrath of God, because he was the free, perfect gift of salvation. Do you know that there are many pagan religions even today that try to propitiate their gods? We have a missionary who's a friend of mine serving right now in a South American country, and he was talking about the fact that the locals during harvest time have a big party. It's usually just a big drunken super, but in that party, they usually offer some sort of an offering to the spirits. Usually it's some sort of alcohol, so it's interesting that they offer spirits to the spirits. But they do it to try to appease the spirits so that next year they have a good harvest. There's nothing that they can do because they're not going to be able to appease the spirits and they're worshiping the wrong God. And so it's just a superstition. It's just a ritual for them. But that's the mentality. That's what they do. But you know what? Scripture tells us that because of our sin, God has to pour out his wrath on that sin and that Jesus steps in and that he is the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation. He's the one that turns away the righteous wrath of God because God poured his wrath out on his only son, Jesus Christ, when Christ died on the cross of Calvary for our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, He made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the Bible teaches very clearly that the innocent one, Jesus, had paid it all. And so because Jesus propitiated the wrath of God, because Jesus paid the purchase price for our sins, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we are freely justified by God. We are declared not guilty before God. I like what the larger Westminster Catechism says on the question, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all of their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed them to them and received by faith alone. It is all of God and none of us. You can't give enough. You can't work enough. You can't pray enough. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't do enough good deeds to get you right with God. Jesus did it all. We need to remember that. We need to appreciate what Christ has done for us because the righteous judge declares us not guilty when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What does it say? It finishes off by saying this, God demonstrated, presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous or justify the one who has faith in Jesus. We are declared righteous before an all, almighty, righteous, holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's important that we keep in mind the very last statement in Christ alone, faith in Christ. See, I think we sometimes have 
misunderstood faith. We've watered down faith. Faith is just another word that we throw out there for a variety of different reasons. Hey, when you want somebody to have confidence, you need to do something. Hey, just have faith in me. Hey, I, I have faith in you. I have faith that so-and-so is going to do this. I have faith in this. I have faith in that. And it just becomes an innocuous word. But when faith is talked about in Scripture, faith emphasizes three things, and I want us to see it. There are three C's that I want you to remember. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what we're talking about is this. We have faith that has content, we have faith that has confession, and we have faith that has commitment. Here's the problem. We usually get the first couple, but we miss the last one. See, when we exercise the faith that's described in Scripture, first and foremost, it has to have the content in Jesus Christ. Christ is the object of our faith. That I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who never sinned, who knew no sin, went to the cross of Calvary, was crucified, buried, rose again three days later to bring about my salvation if I would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross of Calvary. That I would believe the content, that I would confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. It's not just a mere assent. I believe it. I confess it. I pro proclaim that I have faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And then lastly, there's a commitment. I commit to serving God with my whole life, for my whole life, that He is my Savior and my Lord. How do I know what's, that that is important and, and actually what the Scriptures teach in Hebrews chapter 12? It says this, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When I say that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the source, or source and perfecter of my faith, what am I, I, what am I doing? I'm running the race that he set before me. I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to finish well. I'm going to persevere to the end because God's called me to serve him and follow him all the days of my life. If I've truly put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to do that because he's my, my Savior and my Lord. He's sovereign over my whole life. He's the king. He's my master. My question for you is this. If you are here this morning, have you come to grips with the fact that you are a sinner before God? Have you taken the time to actually think through all of the wicked things that you think or do or say? Not based on your standard of wickedness, but God's standard. There are times when I have to say I'm, I'm overwhelmed with just some of the things that I think. You have an interaction with somebody and you just kind of pass judgment on that person right off the bat. Meet them for the first time, you barely have an, an opportunity to get to know them, and you walk away going, you know, I don't know if I like that person very much. Who does that? Why? Except for my sinful heart. I encourage you to confess your sin before God, put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, because God is freely 
presenting his grace to you. Salvation through Jesus Christ. I, I implore you this morning, if you don't know Christ as Savior, trust him with your whole life. He desires to save you from your sin. Christian, are we sometimes still wrestling with what Paul talked about in his own life? Where we sometimes still think that we have accumulated certain credentials that make us right with God? We don't remember what Christ has done for us. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, says, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had inherited credentials. Then he had earned credentials regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. I was so zealous that I even persecuted people I thought weren't right with God. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. And this is what he says. He says, but everything that was gained to me, I consider to be a loss because of Christ. When he came face to face with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he saw his sinfulness and he saw the holiness of God, Paul realized that all of his credentials that he thought he had were actually liabilities. All his assets were liabilities. The only asset that he had was Jesus Christ. Christian, do we remember that? That the only asset that we have is Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think when we lose sight of the gospel, that really affects whether or not we want to share it with anybody. When we forget what we have been saved from, why would we want to tell anybody about what they could be saved from? When we forget how loving our Savior is, why would we want to tell somebody about a loving Savior? May we run with endurance the race set before us. May we not forget what we believe based on the Word of God. May we never fall into some of these stats that I read this morning, but that we would be believers in Jesus Christ, faithful to His Word, believing what He teaches from His Word by His Holy Spirit. Thank you.